You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Someone believes, or would like others to believe, that Britain's National Health Service is for sale to the U.S. There's no word on whether the U.S. has offered the Brooklyn Bridge in exchange. The Quantum Dragon Study summarizes Chinese efforts to obtain quantum research. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Results from Western institutions. The FBI says FaceApp is a security threat. Pixie, a Python rat, has been quietly active in the wild since 2018, and an Ethereum developer is accused of aiding Pyongyang. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, December 3rd, 2019. A leak of purportedly secret documents outlining alleged topics of Anglo-American trade talks appears to be foreign disinformation most likely of Russian origin. 
Reuters reports that researchers see similarities to the secondary infection campaign the Atlantic Council unmasked in June. The incident has raised concerns that foreign attempts to interfere with upcoming British elections may already be in progress. The report in Reuters is ambiguous. On the one hand, it notes that the opposition Labour Party is citing the documents as representing genuine leaks that show the intention of the ruling Conservative Party to sell Britain's National Health Service to the United States. On the other hand, the idea that either the UK or the US would actually be interested in such a transaction seems pretty far-fetched. Reuters says it's been unable to verify that the documents are genuine, and no comments were available from Her Majesty's government, the U.S. Trade Representative, or, surprisingly, the Labour Party itself. Of course, we don't have any direct knowledge of the documents, but if you bet on form, as we like to do, we think it's probably a lot of hooey. Forgive our lapse into the technical jargon of analysts. The provenance of the documents is dubious, to say the least. They seem to have been first shared on Reddit by a user who seemed not to be a native speaker of English, and that the poster's language and the websites and social media used to disseminate the documents all looked a great deal like secondary infection. The researchers who've looked into the matter, including teams at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, Graphica, and the universities of Oxford and Cardiff, think the whole affair looks fishy. Attribution in such matters is notoriously difficult, and Moscow isn't talking either. But Lisa Marie Neudert, a researcher at Oxford University's Project on Computational Propaganda, observed to Reuters that if it's indeed a Russian operation, quote, we know from the Russian playbook that often it is not for or against anything. It's about sowing confusion and destroying the field of political trust, end quote. U.S. security startup Strider has released a report on how China has penetrated quantum research laboratories in the U.S., Switzerland, the U.K., and Germany, to obtain results that have important military applications. Much of that penetration seems to have been obtained in traditional ways, by forming partnerships with universities, recruiting Western scientists, and placing students and faculty in research institutions of interest. Heidelberg University is said to have been particularly thoroughly prospected. As the year winds down and we head into 2020, the coming elections present a security challenge at multiple levels, local and national. Earl Matthews is Chief Strategy Officer at Veriden, which is a FireEye company, and he shares these insights. At the state level, every state has a Secretary of State, uh, just like we do at the, at the national level. And they're actually the ones who are responsible as the Chief Election Officer uh, and have responsibility for the election administration. You know, the testing and certifying that all the voting equipment for security, the accuracy, the reliability and accessibility to ensure that every vote is counted as cast belongs to the Secretary of State and the Election Commission. But the states also have, reporting to the governor in a separate chain of command, uh, our chief information officers, which are appointed by the governor, and the chief information security officer. Uh, and while these uh, employees don't have a direct working relationship or reporting relationship with the Secretary of State and the Election Commissions, I think that they should, especially with this growing importance of cybersecurity, have a tighter relationship among states. And that's primarily because... I don't think we have been treating the election system as a business system. And that is really the fundamentality of the CIO and the chief information security officers. What do you mean by treating it as a business system? Typically, what ends up happening with voting is 
uh, we treat it as uh, isolated events, and it's not a consistent event that happens every single day. And so as a result, we don't tend not to put the same layers of defense in place uh, for our election system as we would treat a business system that is being accessed every every single day. What about this notion that um, rather than the, the actual you know physical altering of votes, the, the, the idea that uh, people don't have a trust in the system, that, that that can be just as corrosive. Yeah, Dave, I, you know, I am becoming less and less concerned with the actual physical mechanism of voting because, as I mentioned earlier, I think the, the companies are doing a pretty good job on putting in a, you know, access controls to those. What I actually am getting more concerned about um, is what I would consider left of the voting day and that is the uh, hacking of um, the voter database roles, uh, hacking at the DMV because that's connected to the election system. I'm worried about phishing. I'm worried about spoofing of websites on the day of the election, you know, kind of producing false information or misinformation, saying that mm-hmm. a particular polling place is closed or um, there's an email comes that looks like it's coming from the election official giving out false information. Uh, that's really kind of what I'm starting to become more concerned about than the actual, you know, physical day of voting. You know, I've heard uh, many people who work in the realm of election security say that uh, they believe that the the ultimate fallback here is that we need to be writing things down, that, you know, paper ballots and paper records uh, are a backstop that we should have. What's your take on that? My take is is that when uh, you go in and you use a voting machine uh, to vote, that not only is there an electronic record, but it also produces a paper ballot in which then the voter can sign. And then that you know, can also be used then when we do the audits if there seems to be a, an irregularity. So I'm a fan of actually uh, both. Uh, I think the, the electronic version right speeds up the, the counting of the vote. If you only go to paper-only ballots, right, which is the most secure way, however, you know, that even depends, <laughs> that has some vulnerabilities, right, because it has to be physically transported somewhere. It just takes longer to, to uh, tabulate the vote. So uh, ultimately, I mean, what are the take-homes here? What are your recommendations, both as security professionals and, and citizens? Uh, what should our attitude be towards securing our elections? So one, I think for the election commission folks, right? They really need to understand what the involving uh, threat landscape is on what are the techniques and how uh, the vulnerability system could be upset, right? During the, during the, during the whole process through the year, they need to deploy like we do in IT business systems, a, a layered defense, uh, which you know includes uh, physical security, you know, system hardening, user authentication, encryption, um, audits and trails uh, like that. Uh, they should take advantage of existing online resources uh, on about election security. Uh, DHS has election services, uh, really good white papers on that, as does Cook County, as does the Belfer Center at Harvard University, as does the Internet for Internet Security, just to name a few. They need to practice good cyber hygiene, still the number one problem even for business systems, which means you have to have a culture uh, around elections the same way that we have around our financial and medical information. I think that uh, none of the elections should be connected to the Internet, even if they're automated. 
I think election commissions need to use risk-limiting audits. To, if there's a wide variance, that means there's a percentage of records that have to be recounted. And then finally, as part of this overall ecosystem, we, it's not just the election system because it's tied into the voter database system and it's tied into the DMV and tied into other systems. So that's why I recommend the involvement of the state chief information officer and the state chief information security officer. That's Earl Matthews from Verodin. Responding to senatorial questions, the U.S. FBI said the Russian-developed facial image editing application FaceApp represents a counterintelligence threat. The New York Times points out that FaceApp denies sharing data with anyone, including the Russian intelligence and security organs, and says that most images are deleted from its servers within 48 hours. But the FBI regards any app built in Russia as inherently problematic. Russian services have robust cyber exploitation capabilities, with both the ability and authority to remotely access all communications and servers on Russian networks without making a request to ISPs. BlackBerry Silence describes Pixie, a new Python remote access trojan. This particular rat delivers ransomware to targets in the education and healthcare sectors. It's been quietly active in the wild since 2018, the researchers say, and it hasn't attracted much attention. Its operators have been more successful than most at obfuscation and misdirection. A U.S. Ethereum developer was charged Friday with offenses related to helping North Korea evade sanctions. Virgil Griffith, whom the U.S. denied permission to travel to Pyongyang, nonetheless obtained travel documents from what U.S. federal prosecutors describe as a diplomatic mission facility in Manhattan, presumably a DPRK mission associated with the United Nations, and then in April used those documents to attend a conference in Pyongyang. What's objectionable about that? According to the U.S. prosecutors, here's the problem. The topic of Mr. Griffith's talk was how North Korea could use cryptocurrency to achieve independence from the global banking system. And that, in the considered view of the U.S. government, amounts to providing North Korea with technical knowledge Pyongyang would use to launder money and evade international sanctions. North Korea is under very tight international sanctions that have effectively crippled it financially and rendered the Kim regime a pariah state. Those sanctions are for the most part aimed at North Korea's nuclear and ballistic missile programs. Mr. Griffith, whom Fifth Domain describes as someone who established himself as a bit of a tech embarrassment back in the aughts, is charged with one count of conspiracy to violate the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. He's had brushes with the law before, but those were the sorts of things that aren't uncommon among those who buy into the hacker romance. While a student at the University of Alabama, for example, he and another student had described ways of hacking a campus debit card system to get free sodas, free use of laundry machines, and access to the other impedimenta of undergraduate life. That time, he apologized, promised not to actually build the device he described, and agreed to 40 hours of community service. The stakes, unfortunately, are higher this time around. The government has said that Mr. Griffith had at least one co-conspirator, so far unnamed, who will be brought to New York and arrested. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's the Program Director for Public Policy and External Affairs at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, it's great to have you back. Good to be with you again. Uh, interesting article. This is uh, from CNET. 
There's a bipartisan bill that would require uh, agencies who wanted to use facial recognition surveillance, well, they would have to get a warrant. What's going on here? So this is a bipartisan bill in the United States Senate uh, proposed by Senator Chris Coons of Delaware and Mike Lee uh, of Utah. Coons, the Democrat. Lee is a Republican, but sort of libertarian leaning. Hmm. Um, And what this bill would do is set the first federal standards for the use of facial recognition. It would apply to uh, applications to surveil somebody for up to 72 hours using facial recognition software. So if you go beyond 72, that's where you, the warrant requirement would kicks be required. In. Okay. Uh, Interesting. The, a warrant would not be required for uh, identification purposes. So hmm. we use facial recognition software at the federal level to identify individuals, particularly as it relates to their immigration status. So I know um, this article mentions that ICE... Uh, Immigrations and Customs uh, Enforcement uses that technology for identification, Mm -hmm. and that would not be covered under this piece of legislation. So, well, you know, I think this is a noble effort. It sort of falls short uh, in the mind of civil liberties advocates in a number of ways. You know, first and foremost, this is kind of obvious, but when you're passing any sort of federal uh, law dealing with law enforcement, it's a relatively limited universe because most law enforcement activity happens at the state level. Hmm. Um, so this bill wouldn't prevent, you know, state police or local police departments from using facial uh, recognition software for monitoring without a warrant. Um, and we already know that that's something that does happen in uh, a lot of states. Now, it, 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 so that being the case, is this a situation where? For example, a federal law enforcement organization could partner with their local friends at the state level and the state folks would be fine doing the surveillance? Yeah, um, although, you know, if you had a statute, you could construct a statute in such a way that you could prohibit any federal agency from, you know, even partnering with a state organization uh, using this technology. Okay. Um, the other limiting factor, uh, which this article mentions, is that the type of persistent facial recognition surveillance they talk about here isn't really something that the federal government does uh, to this point. Um, the technology is just not quite ripe enough for the federal government to use. Hmm. So it's sort of, I think, uh, one of the advocates uh, against this piece of legislation, not necessarily against it, but somebody who was observing this legislation was sort of like, what's the point? Um, If we're not preventing facial recognition for identification purposes um, and we're, you know, requiring warrants for something that the federal government is not yet doing, why even do this in the first place? You know, I think Hmm. the answer to that is probably just laying the groundwork. We have Mm -hmm. this area uh, of concern. I mean, facial recognition obviously poses major privacy and civil liberties concern. Um, And this is sort of a first stab at trying to, to put some federal regulation behind it. So unlikely that this will have a lot of traction in its current form, but maybe a, an initial volley to start the conversation. Exactly. Yeah, I don't see this piece of legislation going anywhere. I mean, nothing really goes anywhere in the United States Senate. <laughs> um, it's, your, it's your optimism I admire. It man. is. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I would not bet my life on a piece of legislation passing the Senate. Right. <laughs> uh, but yes, I believe this is sort of the first volley. You know, it's always... There's going to be some piece of maybe broader data privacy legislation in the future, and maybe this becomes one component of that. And that happens frequently. Yeah. Um, you sort of get something on the record, you know, lay down a claim that you think a certain type of surveillance should be regulated, 
and that sort of seeps into you know the national uh, political conversation. Gets people talking about it, like absolutely you and I. Yep. All right. <laughs> All right We're well, part ben, of the solution. There you go. All right. Well, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.